It's time for Mac Geek Gab, and listener Bruce brings us our quick tip of the week with a follow-up from last week. There is a very simple way to show or hide normally invisible files in the Finder, and that is by pressing Command-Shift-Period. More quick tips like this, plus your questions answered today on Mac Geek Gab 979 for Monday, May 1st, 2023. Greetings, folks, and welcome to Mac Geek Gab, the show where... You send in tips like that. And it was uh, that that particular tip came from Bruce and Eric and Ben and Wayne and so many of you. I missed it during the show because I wasn't paying attention. Next time I endeavor to do better. But you send in quick, quick tips like that. We share your quick tips. You send in your cool stuff found. We share cool stuff found. You send in your questions. We try to answer your questions. We stitch it all together into an agenda. And the goal is such that by doing all of that, and following through the agenda, we each learn at least five new things every single time we get together. Sponsors for this episode include collide.com slash MGG, K-O-L-I-D-E.com slash M-G-G. We'll talk more about what you will get when you go there, but it's awesome. Zero Trust, tailor-made for Okta. Cool stuff. For now, here in Durham, New Hampshire, I'm Dave Hamilton. And here in Fairfield, Connecticut. This is John F. Brown. And here in Lee, New Hampshire, is Pilot Pete listening to the British jets going home overhead. I think they're gone now. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's been loud over my house and then Pete's house as, uh, as yeah. a bunch of uh, bunch of jets are leaving from Pease Air Force Base, Air Force yeah. Base, right? Uh, right. Kind of down the road from us both. So, yeah. all right. Let's. Uh, Let's get into this cool stuff. There's quick tips here because we have yet another follow-up. Uh, in fact, we've got some great quick tip follow-ups here. We were talking in episode 978 about uh, the the tip for moving messages, moving among messages in macOS and uh, using control tab or shift control tab. And Scott says, Rather than using control tab, which I find unnatural to use within an application, he says, I use it to shift between applications. I simply changed the keystroke in settings, keyboard, keyboard shortcuts, app shortcuts, messages to use command up arrow and command down arrow. That makes more sense to me. This is one of the coolest things about Mac OS that you can set your own keystrokes to do things and you can make them system-wide or app-specific so that they aren't getting in the way of what command up arrow and down arrow do in other apps. It's very cool. And uh, and then he shares, so I like that. Uh, so thank you for that, Scott. He also shares a bonus tip, which is sort of a quick tip revisited. Uh, he says, if you've got contacts pinned, uh, you can use command one through command nine to access uh, up to, you, you know, you can have nine contacts pinned and or and you can access them that way. By the way, pinning contacts is not just about individual contacts. You can pin group chats as well. So if you have a like a family group chat or a work group chat uh, that you want to pin, you can pin that too. It's you can any anything that's a chat can be pinned. So hopefully, lots of quick tips there for you. I don't know. Yeah, that's what I got. Yep, that's that's what we got for today. Uh, 
Actually, no, that's not true. We have more. John, we have uh, one from Henry, also a reference to show 978. Yes, we do. Um, last week's iOS Safari tip reminded me of another feature available when the address bar is fully visible. If you swipe left or right on the address bar, you'll switch to your next or previous tab. And if you're on the very last tab, swiping left will open a new tab. You can tell you're on the last tab if there is no hint of another address bar peeking into the right of your current address bar. By the way, tapping on that little bit that peeks in will also take you to the next tab. Similar thing on the left for previous tab, but those require more precision than swiping. Yeah. Uh, I find that harder to do. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. And this is on iPhone uh, and maybe iPad. I can't remember how so far. Probably not iPad because on iPad, you actually get to see your tabs at the top. So, yes, this is on iPhone. Yeah. Yeah. I like uh, that's good. That's good. Yeah. I um, I like it all. Um, I noticed the other day if you are if, if, if you are a Twitter user who recently lost your ability to use SMS for two-factor authentication, if you like had a check mark before and then it went away, uh, you now you need the, the check mark in, uh, on Twitter in order to have two, uh, two-factor authentication using SMS. And so it will force you the next time you log in after you lose your check mark to, uh, to, to, to change that. Or if you haven't been using it, you can't use SMS unless you pay the eight bucks a month. However, there is still the possibility of using two-factor authentication on Twitter. You just have to do it with like the, you know, the, the one-time passwords. And I think maybe there's another way to do it. But, I, I, you know, I just changed mine to using one-time passwords, which for me, I store in, in one password. And, uh, and so now I'm back to having 2FA on, on Twitter and you don't have to pay for the, the privilege. I guess SMS messages probably cost them something. In fact, I'm certain they do. That's sort of how that works. So they probably limit that to just people who are paying them. But but you can still do two factor authentication on Twitter. Just you have to you have to go in and actually do it again. So it was not obvious to me the path that they sent me down. It was like, oh, you just lose the ability to do two FA. I'm like, I don't like that. That sort of worries me. Well, good news. You can go get it back. Just knock on the door a little bit harder. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> um, I recently guys, I, you know, I've had fiber for a couple of years, John and Pete. Uh, yep. I recently changed my connection. I moved it, as I mentioned, I think on the show from the office over to the house because the house has the generator and I just want all the network gear over there so that I don't have to deal with, you know, it just has an automatic generator. So all good to go. So in doing that, I moved from, even though it's sort of the same provider, they changed brand names. Uh, I moved from having a PPPOE connection uh, to having a DHCP connection, which all else being equal is way better. My IP address doesn't change three times a day anymore. In fact, it doesn't change at all anymore. Uh, I don't need to have a router that supports PPPOE, even though I still do, right? Like it's a, it's a better way of, of going about it. The one thing though, is that unlike cable modems, um, the fiber, at least my fiber connection. And for those of you that I've talked with who are also using DHCP on fiber, uh, the fiber connection stores your 
the MAC address, the hardware Ethernet address of your router in the provider's database, and the provider is the only one who can change it, right? With a cable modem, your cable modem grabs the the MAC address when it powers up, and if you need to change, like if you get a new router, you just power cycle your cable modem, and then it lets you put your new router in, no problem. You don't have to make any phone calls. You don't have to open a support ticket. With fiber, that is not the case. You do have to open a support ticket to change. Well- I mean, fine, but I knew this going in. And so what I did was I asked the the tech because I could, I could have gotten this information myself, but it's way better if I get what they think my Mac address is. So I asked the tech, I said, tell me what your system says my Mac address is now that I'm set up with my router and all of that stuff. And he was like, sure. You know, he showed it to me on his computer screen and I put it in my uh, entry in one password that also logs me into, you know, my provider's website, like to pay the bill and all that stuff. And so now I have the MAC address for the device that is authenticated to use on my account. Most routers will let you do what's called MAC address cloning. So if my router blows up and I need to put a new router in, I know what MAC address to tell it to masquerade as to let me back in. So even, you don't have to open a ticket. So I don't have to nice. open a ticket at 3 a.m. on a Sunday morning when I have no idea if they're going to be there to answer and, and help me. Right. So. Well, that's great. Yeah. Now, can can I go get mine off of my, can I just look at my, I should be able to look at my router, see what the you MAC should, address is, and that would be it, right? Correct. You just want to make okay. sure you grab the MAC address of the WAN port that you are using. Some routers have multiple ports that can be used for the, the WAN, right. like the Synology routers, for example. Have two. They have two, and one of, here's, a, here's another, you know, so now the tangential quick tip. On the Synology routers, uh, at least the RT6600, the current one, the... Mm. Uh, and this is probably true of others. There's one WAN port and then there's a four port switch for the LAN. Right. Port one on that four port switch can also be used for the WAN. If you want to have like it's failover secondary backup or yeah, in your case, you were using cable and I was, I've turned, yeah. I've, I've turned off cable. Yeah. I have it all wired up. I, it, it take it'll take me a couple hours to like call them and, and have them turn it back on. So I, I wanted to stop paying yeah. them 40 bucks a month. So it's fine. Right. Um, however, even without using a secondary connection, I'm not using my WAN port. I am using my LAN one port for my fiber connection because that port is the only port of the five on my router that supports 2.5 gig ethernet. And my device from my, my provider also supports, well, it'll support up to 10 gig ethernet. So I figured, why not give it the headroom? I don't need these other, you know, I don't need the one port there. I connect it to a, a bigger switch anyway. So that's why I can't just read the bottom of my router and say, I know what my WAN port's IP, MAC address is. I do know what my WAN port's MAC address is, but that's not the one that my fiber provider knows <laughs> because I've, they've never seen it. Well, is the, so that begs the question for me, is, is the other one, is that limited to one gig? It is. It is unclear in the documentation. I had to ask support this because I was like, yeah. I think there's something broken with my router. I'm like, I'm only getting 2.5 on the, on the LAN one port, not on the WAN port. They're like, yeah, no, that's as designed. I'm like, okay. It was just you worded. Would think yeah. You would flip that around. You'd want your 
WAN port to be the one that handles the most traffic in your backup to be so limit one. Here's why it's not. I think I I didn't ask them this once they confirmed for me that it it, that it was what I was seeing. I was like, okay, great. Mm -hmm. I, I know what to do. Perfect. I'm on it. The reason I think that they do this, Pete, is because that way you as if they're only going to pay to put one 2.5 gig port on there by putting it as the first port of the 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 you know the the land switch mm-hmm. and giving it the option of being used on the WAN, you now as the user have the option of saying, okay, I want to use that 2.5 gig port for my WAN or I want to use it for my LAN connection. Because maybe I want to plug it into like a network storage device that uh, that would benefit uh, okay. Okay, from, from having sense. that. Right. Yeah. And yeah. arguably that might be the smart move for me, too. Like, I, I, I don't know that I would ever wind up using more than one gig, you know, on my Internet connection, whereas maybe I would use more than one gig on my uh, on a NAS on my NAS. Yeah, like because yeah. Okay. because even though the rest of the ports and we'll get into this a little bit here just to explain. But even though the rest of the ports on the switch are only one gig per second, if you have two devices connected to, you know, each port, then each of those gets one gig per second. And that means they can each talk to the 2.5 gig port at their own full speed. So assuming the device on the 2.5 gig port is capable of transmitting data you know, like the hard drives on your NAS can can, you know, generate data that fast, then great. OK, you could you could talk to multiple devices at, at full speed. Gotcha. Does that make that, sense? That does, actually. Yeah. OK. That at first it didn't. It's like, well, that's just silly. Why would you not have your your WAN port being the fastest one? Oh, that sound means I get to tell you about our sponsor Collide and they have some big news. If you're an Okta user, they can get your entire fleet to 100% compliance. How? Well, if a device isn't compliant, the user can't log into your cloud apps until they've fixed the problem. It's, it's that simple, literally. Collide Patch is one of the major holes in zero-trust architecture device compliance. Without Collide, IT struggles to solve basic problems like keeping everyone's OS and browser up to date. Unsecured devices are logging into your company's apps because there's nothing there to stop them. Collide is the only device trust solution that enforces compliance as part of authentication, and it's built to work seamlessly with Okta. The moment Collide's agent detects a problem, it alerts the user and gives them instructions to fix it. If they don't fix the problem within a set time, well, they're blocked. Collide's method means fewer support tickets, less frustration, and most importantly, 100% fleet compliance. Visit collide.com slash MGG to learn more or book a demo. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash MGG. And our thanks to Collide for sponsoring this episode. And while we're here, I've got a show to tell you about. Look, when the New Yorker magazine asked Mark Zuckerberg how he gets his news, he said the one news source he definitely follows is TechMeme. For four years now, the Tech Meme Ride Home podcast has been Silicon Valley's favorite tech news source. The podcast has become so successful, in fact, that it launched a venture fund where the listeners to the show are the limited partners in the fund. 
The Tech Meme Ride Home is like TLDR as a service. It's not just the latest headlines from the world of tech. It's also the context around the latest news of the day. It's all the top stories, the top posts and tweets and conversations about those stories, as well as the behind the scenes analysis. Guests who have come on the show to lend their expertise include Andreessen Horowitz's Chris Dixon and Bloomberg's Apple rumor king, Mark Gurman. The folks at TechMeme are online all day reading everything so they can catch you up. And me, too. I've added this to my podcatcher. I listen to TechMeme Ride Home all the time. So listen to the one podcast anyone who's anyone in Silicon Valley listens to every single day. Search your podcast app now for Ride Home and subscribe to the TechMeme Ride Home podcast. And our thanks to the team over there for doing this swap with us. All right, let's do some questions. John, I think Jed has, Jed found an interesting thing. Yeah, I've actually run into this myself, but um, Jed says, just wanted to send in this warning question mark. <laughs> so I have Mint Mobile and never need a lot of data, but last fall and this spring, I'm noticing that if I have maps on for an hour or three and I'm in, and I'm driving kids to various sports and social stuff, my data hit its cap. I just checked the map eight up uh, 20 gigs this weekend. That's in like three to four hours. So I may be going back to Waze or Google Maps. Just thought I would let people know. Um, Weird. And yeah, you can see this, Dave. If, if you go to um, uh, settings cellular, it'll list your various apps and how much data they use. And, and I actually had had this happen when I switched over to 5G, all of a sudden I blew my data cap in like less than an hour. Was that and because you were doing a went... bunch of speed tests? No, oh. no, it wasn't. Oh, really? No, and then I looked and I, I did the same thing. You know, I looked in settings cellular and weather was taking up gigabytes of data. It's like, why? Yeah, I remember you saying that now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's interesting. Fascinating. Huh. The only time I had maps take up data like that was like on a long road trip. You know, last summer we drove to Florida. It, it, it but I don't, I don't recall it hitting my cap right away. I mean, I hit the, I hit the cap that month, and that's why I switched to unlimited. Like that matter. So you did. They so, still throttle you. But maps, um, maps chewed up that much, like gigabytes of data. Well, I think what it was is we we were just on the road for two days and. And so I wasn't on Wi-Fi, and so you know I tend to like, for instance, uh, I, I listened to Sirius XM. <laughs> Got cheap, it. Cheap, cheap pilot. Not that not that audio takes up a lot, but cheap pilot trick here, folks. So we pay for the Sirius XM from my wife's car, and so I get the app on my phone, and I listen to Sirius XM on my phone using Apple CarPlay. So of course, I pay for two radios when. You get the app and oh, an Apple CarPlay. Yeah. yeah, they're probably going to hear that and shut that down now. No, I don't know how they could, <laughs> but um, yeah, that's it. Right? No, that's a smart. I like that tip. I like that. Yeah, I, I, I can't imagine why Maps would use gigabytes of data like this. Like it doesn't, it doesn't make sense to me. We haven't heard yeah. if 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 others are out there seeing that though. Let us know feedback at macgeekup.com. Like we definitely want to know. Where? Feedback at MacGeekGab.com? Feedback at MacGeekGab.com. That's true. Okay. Um, I, I when, when his email came in, I looked, because I just reset my cellular stats uh, two months ago, on February 22nd, so about two months ago. Uh, and I use maps almost exclusively 
mm-hmm. while driving, right? It is my mapping app. Um, and I have the same provider. I use Mint. Not that that's relevant here. But um, in two months, Maps has used, for me, a grand sum total of 500, less than 500, 469 megabytes of cell data. Um, and that's in my top 10 apps, right? Like in terms yeah. of data usage. And I've done, I did a trip down to New York. Like I've, I've done some longer road trips, but I use maps all the time. So I'm just, I'm, I'm curious as to what it would take to get it to burn 20 gigs of data. That's interesting. Yeah, that's, that's a lot. My, there, my biggest one for the last two months is speed test uh, at 2.2 gigs speed tests, especially on 5g. If you're getting, um, you know, if you're getting that, that, you know, hundred to 200 to 300 megabit per second connection, that will chew up, you know, a quarter gig per speed test. Uh, just FYI. Sure. Yeah. Oh, interesting. And by the way, uh, the part about being on mint mobile that is relevant is, uh, you know, mint is a, a, an MVNO for T-Mobile meaning they use T-Mobile's network, right? Uh, because they're an MVNO, there's some part about the deal I'll say that means they can't or don't show when you're on 5g versus the 5g uc or whatever t-mobile calls it like the the ultra wideband you know whatever um whatever that is but mint does support the 5g uc or uw or whatever it is it just doesn't show it uh on iphones you know like it does if you had a t-mobile connection you'd either see 5g or 5g uc i think john on verizon you see 5g and 5g uw um I think, but uh, he'll he'll confirm eventually, right? Yes, I've yeah. seen that before. Yeah, um, okay. but like though you do get those speeds with Mint, even though you're not seeing the the distinction happen with the the five G uh, thing. And so, yeah, I've I've had some speed tests on Mint that are like over yeah. four hundred megabits per second on five G, which is amazing. But that's well, why I put yeah. two point two gigs so one other thing about maps though briefly is that uh that they're slowly getting the functionality of ways i've gone off of ways they they alert to speed checks and have yeah. road hazards and that sort of thing yeah it just needs more people playing uh, yes <laughs> report the hazards report report the speed checks yeah although you know siri and her infinite lack of wisdom <laughs> spirit you know hey siri oh sorry hey yes lady uh Speed check at this location. Yeah, <laughs> you deserve yeah. that, Pete. Yeah, I did. <laughs> For those that didn't hear it, she said that's all good. Now, yeah, thanks yeah. a lot. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah, you'll you'll say, "Hey, yes, lady." Speed check at this location. I can't show you that while driving. It's like, oh dear God, make it stop. <laughs> make it stop. That's right. Yep. Yep. I'm trying to figure out where I was when I just recently got a um, a speed test. Uh, for it was like 420 megs a second i think it was local here it's maybe boston or something but um yeah you can 5g 5g can be fast it's fun yeah 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 all right well if you do see the maps using that up folks let us know like this this would be an interesting data point but uh, I'm hoping that it's unique to Jed and especially hoping that it was unique to just that weekend for you, Jed, and not happening all the time. Uh, we got a couple of follow-ups about our discussion on tail scale in uh, 976. 
including a big discussion, uh, kind of follow on discussion in our Discord channel, which I'll, I'll put a link to. But, um, you know, I talked about in 976 how I'm using tail scale to get to my specific machines and then how I have my Synology VPN for if I want to get to the whole network. And then I have, uh, you know, a separate VPN. I use private Internet access if I just want to get to the outside world and not deal with, you know, my home network or whatever. And many of you, including Robert, pointed out that you can uh, use tail scale to uh, to be that outward VPN. And it, it's uh, you set up one of your devices that's, you know, sort of permanently at your house or office or whatever. You use tail scale and you set that up as an exit node. And what that means is that not only can it be a device that you can just attach directly to, but it can also be your path out to the internet, just like a normal VPN. And the nice part is you don't have to set up a normal VPN. You don't even have to have a router that will let you do that because TailScale will do it. So it just needs to be an always on device. So your network, if you have a NAS, like a Synology disk station or something, that's the perfect place to do it, but it gets even better. And this was the part that blew my mind when somebody really explained this to me in a way that it finally sunk. And it was, I think MQ Richards, I want to say in our, in our discord, I can't remember off the top of my head, but it was something like that. Uh, the, the post is out there. Uh, so you get full credit. Uh, but, uh, the idea was, you know, you don't have to put tail scale on all of your computers. You only need to put it on one device in your network. And the reason is it supports something called being a subnet router. And what that will do is let you connect, use that one tail scale device to be the gateway to your network, which means that not only do you not have to install tail scale on all your other devices, you don't need to, meaning you can access devices like printers where you couldn't install tail scale anyway, even if you wanted to. So you set up the and 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 uh, the the idea is. You really only need to set up one device at home with TailScale, turn on exit node and subnet routing capabilities for it. And there's docs about how to do this. It's really not all that complicated. And then when you're connected to your TailScale, you can, you're, you're, you know, you're going through a VPN if you want to get to the outside world, no matter where you are. And you can get to your inside world just by, without needing to put TailScale on anything. So I immediately did that. I, I'm going to stop running TailScale on all of my computers except for my my Synology disk station, and and that'll be that. But it just kind of blew my mind that this is the right way to do this. It makes life way, way, way simpler because you can just be connected to TailScale all the time on your phone and your laptop, and no matter where you are, you just get to all your devices as though you are at your home or your office, wherever your primary network is. Does that make sense, Pete? Did I Did I explain that right? Pete, you are muted. That there's, I knew yeah, you were trying yeah. to talk to me. Yeah, kind of lost me a little bit. But, okay, um, it, it's, that's why I asked. Yeah. So, so I have it on the Mac Mini in the basement, and that's the one I run Perfect. as my exit node when I when I want to run it. Right. Um, but I, I have to have it on my laptop if I want to be on that network. C correct. Okay. You would you would want it on your mobile devices, your laptops. Your my phone, the, my your, iPad, your phone, your iPad, the things that aren't that are going to be traveling away from home with you. Right. But you don't and I need it on my on my Synology drive, my NAS drive in order to see. That's what I'm saying. 
it with no. the subnet router, you don't need it on more than one device at home. Because if you let's say you make your Mac Mini, right, your okay. tail scale device, yes. and it can be your exit node if you want it to be, you turn that on right. or off. And you if you go enable subnet routing, now that Mac Mini will not just be a gateway to the outside world, aka the exit node, it will be a gateway to the inside world via subnet routing. It, they use that gotcha. subnet routing is the wrong term, right? Exit node, yeah. for some reason, like the English equivalent of that makes good sense. It should be an, you know, inbound node, right? So it is just the path yes. to your network and then you use your, your local network IPs and you can get to everything from wherever and it doesn't matter where you are. Right. Okay. That's, well, that's beautiful then because, correct. Yeah, I mean, I still love it because the fact is, you know, with my other show, I put, I have a ton of data. Well, I need to offload that from my laptop so that I don't have gigabytes and gigabytes of of past shows that I don't have anymore. Correct. So I put that on a NAS only folder, it's a, it, yep. but I, I can't access that from the outside world until Tailscale came along last right. Oh, and, yeah. Now I can get to it from anywhere in the world. And I, I cool. there is no harm in it that I found in having Tailscale on more than one device in your network. So what you're doing with it on your Mac mini and on your, your NAS, like there's no reason to stop that necessarily, but there's yeah. also no reason to set that up necessarily, you just set it up on one and then add this subnet routing, AKA the inbound node. <laughs> and, yeah. and then you could hit you via your Mac mini, you could access your, your Synology all the time anyway. Well, then the, let me ask this and it may be uh, because what I do now is I go to the tail scale app yep. or, or, you know, right up in the top in the menu bar and I go down to, uh, uh, network devices, my devices. Yep. And it shows my disk station there. I click on that and it copies the IP address of my disk station. Then I go to finder and I hit connect. Yeah. And I use that IP address. I no longer need to do that. I can just go to my 168.4. Correct. That's correct. You would use the same local IP address whether I was, whether you're in Dubai or in Lee, New Hampshire. Or in the living room. Okay. Correct. Yeah, Dubai or the living room. That's a much better way. Yeah, see, that's yeah. that's the marketing phrase right there. Okay. Yeah. It right. It 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 keeps you from having all these different addresses for the same devices. All that being said, because of the Boy Scout in me, always be prepared. Yeah. Right. Right. Uh, if you are, if you know that you're going to be accessing your Synology a bunch from remote, you don't, and and you're going to need to rely on that because of this data folder that you said you had out there. Mm -hmm. I would not be too hasty to remove tail scale from the Synology because once you do, it is reliant on your Mac mini being up and running and not having crashed or, you know, like Murphy's law. Right. So, yeah. Right. It, right. yeah. yeah. So like it, 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 there's a world where it's okay to do both is, is I guess what I'm saying. Sure. Yeah. You turn the Mac mini off. It won't work. Correct. But, but leave that on there. It'll work even with the now, Mac mini. Now you got to okay. back up. Right. You, you know, so okay. yeah. It's yeah. still, it's as the, these guys at Tailscale are brilliant. They are. Yeah. They, um, oh. we, we have a, a question in the, the chat at macgeekup.com slash discord from, uh, PM Conaway saying, uh, can you only use those features if you have a custom domain? I'm using a Google account. 
No, I am also using a Google account and a hundred percent of the, the features we've just talked about work. So in, and most of us who signed up for Tailscale early on are doing the Google account way because that's the only way it was possible to do it early on. Now you can sign up with a custom domain. And in fact, they just came out with new pricing plans uh, that add more features to all of this, including giving you up to three users for free, not just one user for free, which is huge. However, those of us on Google accounts still only get one user for free because you have to be on a custom domain to add more than one user to your account. And I believe somebody, please correct me if I'm wrong, that all of those users need to be on the same domain. That's how it does what it does. And this is why at the moment, anyway, they're working on it. They say, but at the moment you can only have one Gmail user per domain because otherwise they would let every Gmail user, gmail.com user onto every other gmail.com user's account. And that would be super bad. And so uh, they're not doing that. Now, but, that being said, my wife has a separate computer, her own iMac, and I just put my Tailscale account on there. So I don't need another user. Correct. If you're fine computer. with someone having full access to everything and also being logged in to your Google account, which is fine with your wife, then, yeah. then you're great. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, and you could get creative and and create a second Gmail account that's only used for these purposes, and then it doesn't matter, you know. Yeah. So, but I just got an idea though. I, mom's ninety seven, lives in a nursing home. Her only connection to the outside world is the iPad, and that thing is always giving her trouble. I need to put Tailscale on her iPad. Yes. So I can give her support remotely. Yes. It's you know it's frozen up. I can't get email to do this or that. Yeah. Yeah. Now you can. Now you can, now hang you can. on, mom. I'll take care of that. Yeah. Yeah. Right. 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 Yep. Yeah. yeah no, ta tail scale. Thank goodness for tail scale. They also, it, it's worth reading their article. Again, it's linked in the show notes at MacGeekab.com or MGG.FM slash nine seven nine. If you want to go right there. Uh, and it'll be in your email box. If you sign up for our weekly emails at MacGeekab.com. But uh, they talk about why they are able to offer a free plan for free and how that works and how they are able to not just make you the customer or you the product, right? You are, we are still the customer. They know that by doing this, they see more uptake on their paid plans. And, and so it's the freemium model, not the, we're going to sell your data model. Uh, and they're very transparent about all this. So it, it is worth giving a, a good read. So, all right. Um, more questions. Let's uh, let's go to Craig here. Craig says, does anyone use the Logitech Circle View HomeKit camera? We have a few and all of them cut out daily, showing no response. The fastest and only way I've found to resolve it is to switch off the power, uh, you know, cycle the power on the camera. And that works every time until the next time. It's not ideal, especially if we're away and I can't access the plugs I'm considering buying a couple of Wemo smart sockets. So if we are away, theoretically, I should be able to turn them off and on remotely to solve the cutout problem. If it happens while I'm away, does anyone else have these cameras? Have you had this problem and have you found a solution? And several of you uh, reported using these cameras and seeing this exact problem. So maybe not so many of the Logitech CircleView HomeKit cameras need to be purchased going forward. That's a little PSA. 
uh, anecdotally anyway, you know, there's, there's like four people. So, uh, you know, factor that into your, your purchasing decisions. I have found this though, that the, the symptom that Craig highlighted is that he goes into the home app and it says no response on the kind of the, you get that main sort of dashboard screen, right? And and you see your favorite devices and your cameras and all that stuff on the, on the dashboard screen for HomeKit. Uh, the cameras will say no response there. I see that sometimes with the cameras I have. I have a combination of Eufy cameras, which are, you know, direct to HomeKit support. And I have a bunch of non- HomeKit cameras like Ring and and like a Foscam camera and and others that I use HomeBridge to uh, connect to HomeKit and equally with both of those the Eufy HomeKit cameras and the non you know via HomeBridge cameras I will routinely see the same no response in the dashboard. However, if I tap on the camera and force it to go and like try and talk to the camera, it wakes right up and I see the image live right there and good to go. So there is something about HomeKit being perhaps impatient on waiting for a response back from the camera. I don't know what it is, but if you do see this issue before you presume that you have a camera, that's just bogus tap on it and mm-hmm. dig in and see, because it, it, you might, you might be pleasantly surprised. You might also be, you know, unpleasantly frustrated. I can't promise what's <laughs> going to happen. I can just share what happens with me and others that I know. Do you use any HomeKit cameras, Pete? Do you use HomeKit at all? Uh, I don't. I need okay. to. Um, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I, I don't rely on HomeKit. Yeah. I use HomeKit as sort of the convenient aggregate of all of the other things that I use. Because, like, sure, I could run the Eufy app or the Ring app to see each of, you know, the separate cameras right. that I have in those, obviously. But. Launching the home app is super convenient because it I have everything aggregated there. I've set up Homebridge, which is a, a open source engine. I have it running on my disk station, but you could run it on your Mac. I'll put a link in the show notes. So, uh, I have Homebridge running, which which essentially becomes a gateway for all non many, not all, most most non HomeKit devices to be visible in and controllable in HomeKit. It's it's quite nice. So I use HomeKit as kind of the 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 convenient default way to look at it it's nice because it's available on my macs and so i don't have to have the ring software on my mac i can just launch the home app and see things but it's kind of buggy as as brian monroe in the uh, chat says uh home kit is just buggy garbage well that's true but it's convenient <laughs> garbage it's right at the tip of my fingers so right. I, I but i wouldn't now, rely on now is the, the home i may have misstated the home app is different than home kit no no the home app is oh. your view into home kit okay Yes. Okay. Yes. So, well, so I misstated it then. I, I use it a little bit. When okay. S lady won't turn off a light or turn on a light, I can open the home app and go, all right, you know. Let's go. My favorite one is, hey, S lady, you know, turn on the living room lamp. Yeah. And I get the error. The Google. <laughs> I don't know why you get that error. I've <laughs> yeah. seen it too. The, yeah. You get it the more Google, than me. Uh, yeah. app you needed to have installed to make this work isn't there. Yeah. And I'm like, that has nothing to do with Google. It's yeah. a it's a uh, Philips Hue light. And I just told S Lady to turn it on, and she wants a Google app for it. And I'm like, no. The Philips Hue light is HomeKit native. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. That's why it's particularly frustrating. <laughs> it's like, come <laughs> on. That was a really 
kind way of communicating that sentiment, Pete. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you know, yeah. So I I do want to take a baseball bat and go hit that home bridge down in the basement and <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Stop. Yeah. 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 No, there's yeah. No, Homebridge has been great because again, it just yeah. sort of aggregates all these things together. And it's it now that they have native Homebridge for Synology. I don't have to run it in a Docker container and manage that. It's an I don't think I shouldn't right. say that, but I I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Um now that they have that, I think it's through Syno community or something. Like it it really is not it it it's not for the faint of heart. I, I'm, I'm going to say that, but it's pretty good. You know, there's some of the configurations of getting it set up with each of your different things is a little bit of a deal, but you can do it. If you're listening to the show, you can do it. I, I have faith in you. And if you have any trouble, come to our discord and ask. I, I'm there. You know, there's others there using Homebridge. Like it, it, it's a good place to it's a good resource. It's like, yeah. What I haven't done yet, though, and I had a discussion when I was down in Tennessee with my uh, nephew this week, and he's gonna, he's getting ready to do it. And I went, you know, that's not a bad idea, is setting up a DMZ and putting all those Internet of Things devices on that separate from. You're talking network. about a guest network, not yeah. a, not a, a DMZ is sort of the opposite of what you would want to do, right? Okay. Because well, I'm thinking he, he used the term DMZ, but I'm thinking, OK, I, I, I want a zone where I put where I put all those Internet of Things that can't access my network. Oh, yeah. No, that's not what m most routers, what DMZ mm -hmm. means is, and it's, it, it's, you know, demilitarized zone is the right. term. And so this right. is already a misnomer, but fine, y you know, is it is a way of setting one device as the one that gets all of the traffic that just floods into the outside of your network that your, your router by nature of its sort of de facto firewall capabilities keeps out like right. normally unsolicited packets that arrive at your router's doorstep are just ignored because your router doesn't know what to do with them. Right. You right. know, unless you've set up some port forwardings, then it'll forward them. But a DMZ on most routers is port forward. Everything that I haven't told you about to this other device and let it handle okay. it. Okay, so, yeah, so it's a it's a mis misstatement of terms. Yeah, but okay. what it what it sounds like he's doing is setting up a separate, uh, you know, a a, a um, like a guest network. Yeah, a, yeah, a guest network or or you know some version of that where it's it's um, segregated so that those things can only talk to the outside world and not impact his other devices. The problem with that I've always had is. What convenience are you giving up for that with something like a ring camera, for example? No problem, because you're never talking directly to, other than when you set it up. You're never talking directly to your ring camera. It talks to the Internet. You talk to the Internet. And that's where you meet your ring camera and actually get the data. So it's it's right. a super inefficient thing from a networking standpoint. It works totally fine. Like it's it's yeah. it's great. So that would work fine. But what if you've got a device that's like, uh, you know, a Foscam camera or something where it can do both and you can talk to it locally, which would be all of your HomeKit devices you're talking with locally, right? So you now you're you Then you things. have to get on that network in you, order to talk directly to. Correct. Uh, instead of your yeah. network. So yeah. I, I've always sort of felt like th that's a, it is a solution but it's a baby versus the bathwater solution. You're just like, it's you're, you know, we talk about the, 
the continuum between security and convenience, and that's way closer to security than convenience. Well, and you and I have a different, and John, we have different needs. I mean, in sure. the sense that that we are uh, isolated enough that uh, that there's not a lot. Now he's in an in an apartment slash townhome complex where there's a lot of Wi-Fi networks able to interact with each other and. People well, they're going to they're gonna back into his interfere and, with each other, but they're not going to interact with each other. Well, uh, the, the, I guess uh, for, for, uh, I'm thinking about being a uh, a place for someone to try and hack and oh. mess around with your Wi-Fi. Yeah, and, sure, sure, know, and Fair. try and get into your network using your Hue Light Bridge or your you know. And I know yeah. that's difficult, but the you, I guess my point is the Internet of Things devices they're better now. Early on, they were totally open. Totally. Oh, and that wouldn't, whether you're, you know, alone in the country or in an apartment building, like the, the, yeah. the easiest attack vector is the same. It's come yeah. in over the internet okay. and poke that hole in your, you know, off-brand camera or off-brand printer that has, you know, security Swiss cheese in its default Linux core embedded Linux core that where all the passwords are, you know, like defaults or whatever. And, and then it has, and then once you're in, once you, you know, have root access on that device, then you, you know, and presumably that device is connected to the network. Now you have access just like you're on the network. So that, yeah, that issue, I mean, it's still potential today, but Mm -hmm. as you said, like many, most many, I don't want to say most many, uh, including most of the, the, top name brand vendors have gotten better about this, but there's still those holes. So I get it. Like I get the yeah. desire of doing this. You just, I, I don't know. It, yeah. it, it feels like more trouble than it's worth for most people. So yeah, interesting. Yeah. Interesting point. So I'm actually glad I brought it up. Now I see less yeah. of a need for it than, than initially when he mentioned, you know, yeah, I want to set it up. Yeah. I mean, it, there's a need in. for it, but it's going to introduce complications that you can route around, but, it's, you know, it's going to be, you're going to be the one, well, here's what's going to happen. Let me tell you folks, here's what's going to happen. So Pete's going to, uh, you're not going to, you're probably not going to do this, but <laughs> if you did this, here's how the flow works that I've learned over the, the last decade or so is uh, Pete sets up this, this, you know, new shiny uh, security protocol. And then uh, Pete goes off to travel because he has to, that's how he pays for the new shiny things that he gets. And, uh, and then uh, Pete's wife calls Pete and says, I can't turn the lights on and off anymore. And then Pete calls me and says, Dave, my lights won't turn and off anymore. What do I need to do? What do I need to do? So I stop everything I'm doing. And, and then we try and figure this out. And I, and I ask, well, what did you change? I didn't change anything. And then, you know, within about 15 minutes, we get to, well, I mean, I, I did that thing that I mentioned on the show. It's like that. That's when I that's when I hit my. Um, particularly frustrated moment. It was like, why did you do that? <laughs> right. I told you, you idiot. You're going to have problems. <laughs> I told you. <laughs> I told you not to do that. I told you. So, you know, it's just one of the, it's like, but it, like, this is true of all yeah. of the things that we all do all of the time. I mean, I, thank you for letting me, you know, use you as the, the punching bag on that one, Pete. Hey, uh, you know, uh, but <laughs> like, this is, this is the, 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 the thing is you, you presume some of the ripple effects of the the changes that we make to our networks and our computers and our phones, like any device. And then there are the ripple effects that actually happen, the ones that we didn't predict. And that's why this show exists. So you send your questions in feedback at MacGeekUp.com. It's great. Yeah.
There you go. There you go. All right, John. Maybe we can do a couple more questions before we have to run today. This has been fun. Uh, do you, well, first, do you have like do you, how do you use HomeKit? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, see, see how John, see what John just did. I intentionally didn't ask a yes or no question, and it didn't matter. It didn't matter. I love it. All right. No, I really, really don't use it. Um. Yeah, when I look at the home app, I think my Apple TV is part of the club. Yes. My uh, HomePod minis are part of the club, but that's really it. So you could use HomeBridge to join all of your SmartThings devices to the club. And, and it doesn't preclude you from using your SmartThings devices the way you currently do. It just adds that convenience layer of putting everything together in that one interface that's at, that's accessible on all of your Macs and in Control Center and like all of that stuff. So, like, I do recommend doing the HomeBridge thing if if you have a blend of HomeKit and non HomeKit devices because when it works, HomeKit is super convenient. Uh, it's just that you know we're talking about maybe sixty percent of the time. All right, take us to. Uh, Take us to listener John. We've got a couple of Apple Watch things to talk through. Yeah. Um, John says, I somehow developed a problem. On my 24-inch iMac, I try to unlock with my Apple Watch and nothing happens. It works fine on my MacBook Pro. On the iMac, I went to Touch ID and Password and flipped the switch to enable Apple Watch. But as soon as I do, it flips back to off. That's frustrating. Um, both devices are on the same Apple ID. And as I said, it works on my MacBook pro any idea of what is wrong and how to fix it. Um, I don't know. And this is a rough one guys. Um, I mean, I've, uh, on my system, I've had the Apple watch setting disabled, but turning it back on worked. I never heard of it turning itself off again. Uh, I mean, a few thoughts. One, restart. I'm sure you've done that already, but, you know, can't hurt. Um, Make sure you have the latest software updates. I seem to recall some of the recent ones had something to do with the watch. Um, And the third thing, maybe it's a cache. Isn't it always? (laughs) Oh, that's a good idea. Yeah. Maybe clean things up with Onyx maintenance cleaning options. I like that idea. Yeah, I I mean, I've certainly seen this where when it says that it's on, it doesn't work. And and in those scenarios, turn it off, reboot, turn it back on, often fixes it. You've got to have your watch near you. You've got a pair. And, and maybe that's part of the issue here. Like, is the watch close enough? Is Bluetooth on on the Mac? Like, it uses both Bluetooth and Wi-Fi and, I don't know, probably the phase of the moon or something. But it <clears throat> it... Yeah, I like the idea of cleaning caches because if you can't get it to even attempt to turn on, the, the rest is obviously a non-starter. So, yeah. Huh. Yeah. 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 I, but mine, I had turned off and I didn't realize. I went into system settings and typed in unlock and it came up with the ability to go right to, you know, allow your app watch to unlock your Mac. So I turned it on and it came right on. So I don't know what... Uh, I've just off. been using the fingerprint ID. You know, that's 
Oh, on your on your on my Mac laptop, yeah, unlock yeah. my laptop. Yeah, yeah, it just seems that's it because when I need to turn it on, I'm already touching the keyboard anyway, so it's right there and comes right on. Yeah. Um, and I don't know. I'm, I'm assuming that capability has stayed with all the latest generation laptops. Yes. Oh yeah, yeah. That's yeah. that's a that's a so yeah. That's yeah. A so the need to turn it on with your Apple Watch is is almost less secure because you could be in the next room and someone could you know open your machine and you'll get right a little on. notification on your watch. <laughs> yeah. That, but how, how often have you learned to ignore that? Oh, I'm, I'm real good at ignoring that. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, I noticed, you know, lately I have been wearing my Apple watches less, uh, or my Apple, yeah. I, I guess I have two. I have my OG one and I have the, you know, the series five. I've been wearing them less simply because I've been enjoying wearing my, you know, my mechanical watches. I, I love yeah. my mechanical watches. Um, and, I have noticed two things that like, first of all, where I really miss it most regularly is my iMac in the office doesn't unlock anymore. I have to type my password. Fine. Okay. Uh, but whatever, like, that's fine. I wish my phone could be that. Like if my phone's in close proximity and unlock, couldn't it unlock my Mac? Like, wouldn't that be an interesting way to do it? Anyway, um, I digress. The other thing that I've noticed to your point, Pete is phantom taps on my wrist. I will be wearing a mechanical watch that does not have haptic capabilities. <laughs> and I will look at my wrist because I am certain I got a notification and I am wrong. So, the, yeah, the, uh, that's that's a real phenomenon, too. I read about it years ago about uh, people feel the phone vibrating in their pocket. Yeah, that, too. Yeah, I don't notice that as much I'm... anymore, but I have. Yeah, yeah, yeah crazy all right uh let's stay with apple watch here and see maybe this is a little bit of a geek challenge but john you might have an answer for for mr mike here uh all right well we'll, we'll see okay um mike says i'm thinking of dumping at&t for cricket but the latter doesn't have a cellular watch plan can i keep my watch on at&t and switch my phone plan to cricket um uh, well, I only have a Wi-Fi watch, so I, I couldn't test this myself. But um, they have an article calling Setup Mobile on Apple Watch, and it's kind of confusing, Dave okay. and Pete. Um, so they have one section, and it says, Your iPhone and Apple Watch must use the same network provider. Okay, that's one statement. That's clear. Um, unless the watch was set up for a family member who doesn't have an iPhone. If you change network providers on your iPhone, you need to remove the previous service plan on your Apple Watch and sign up for a new plan. Okay. So the way I read that is you got to reset up your carrier access on the watch. Yeah. So I wonder, I, I would love to hear from somebody who's tried this, right? Because... I think I think that little clause in the middle there is separate from the others, right? Because if we take that out, the 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 but, you know, if we say your iPhone and Apple Watch must use the same network provider, if you change network providers on your iPhone, you need to remove the previous service plan on your Apple Watch and sign up for a new plan. Okay, like that makes sense. This this little clause of unless the watch was set up for a family member who doesn't have an iPhone. I think lives on an island. I don't think it's related to the rest of those two statements. Uh, 
However, you might be onto something here. Like, if I have an iPhone on Mint Mobile, which Mint, at, the, at least at the moment, doesn't have uh, an Apple Watch plan, I don't think, unless it changed this morning or something, and I'm not aware. But uh, let's presume. I would, I can't add my a- Apple Watch to the plan. Like you, John, I don't have a cellular Apple Watch, so this is a non-issue for me, but we'll go with this, right? So I can't add my Apple Watch to the plan. And because I use Mint on my iPhone, my presumption was there was no world where I could get an Apple Watch and put it on, say, AT&T or, you know, one of the, the, the you know, blessed carriers that can talk to Apple Watch. However, what if I treat my Apple Watch like it is a family uh, member, you know, owned by a family member who doesn't have an iPhone and attach it to AT&T? My guess is what that would mean is I would have to have it on a different Apple ID and it couldn't be on my Apple ID. This is a guess, but my presumption is that as soon as the watch sees that it is connected to my main Apple ID, the one that is also connected to my phone, it's going to say, oh, no, 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 no. These have to be the same. I could be wrong about that, but my I, it would not surprise me if that if it needs to be a completely separate thing so that that watch and that phone don't share notifications. They don't share any of that stuff. They're just, you know, one is they're both members of the same family plan, and that's the extent of their relationship, for lack of a better term. But I don't know. I, I'm I'm guessing at this, but I'm I'm get I'm I, I I wouldn't be surprised. Can you even have an Apple Watch independent of an iPhone? I don't even remember. Well that that's what they're saying, Pete, is yes, yeah. if you don't have an iPhone, if you're part of a family plan, your family member can set up your Apple Watch without you having an iPhone. And therefore it can be on a carrier separate from your non existent iPhone. But I think that's the the key point is your non-existent iPhone. As soon as you have an iPhone, now they need to be on the same plan. That would be my guess. But I like this little geek challenge and there's a loophole here. There's a loophole in the language. The question is, is there the same technical loophole? And my guess is no, because otherwise we'd hear about people doing this all the time. But maybe it's just something we haven't heard about. Right. Yep. Kurt. Kurt noticed something. Kurt says, I have a 2021 uh, M1 iMac with eight gigs of RAM running Monterey still. He says, oh, this is interesting. This this actually, well, it's possible that this, this, my theory holds. He says, I open a lot of windows between browsers and office products. When I first got the Mac with all the programs running, I would get the message saying I was using most of my memory and running out of memory. Recently, the memory issue, or at least the alert, does not happen. Did Apple fix something? So you might remember if you've listened to this show for more than about six weeks, that there was a period of time where we were talking a lot about all of these memory alerts that we were getting on our Macs and what, you know, the out of memory alert, what does it mean? Do I need to pay attention to it? How do I pay attention to it? What do I do to fix it? What do I do? Is it anything or is it nothing? And we had a lot of speculation. There were certain things that you look at and, okay, you're running out of swap space. You're, you know, doing this. Okay. That's bad. This is bad. But these sort of generic non-specific memory errors did exist. 
And a lot of the sort of conjecture and conclusions that we came to was, eh, it doesn't seem to be anything to do. Just ignore it. And now we stopped hearing about all of those messages. And Kurt noticed this. So I'm wondering if Kurt's right. Did Apple fix it? There have been updates to Monterey, you know, security updates, but Apple's been known to bake some things into these updates that go beyond security, especially nuisance fixes. So did they remedy this problem or did they just simply realign the alert threshold so that it wasn't so annoying? Because if we were hearing about it regularly here, I also know who else was hearing about it a lot more frequently, (laughs) right? right? You know, so... Like, I really, I wonder if that threshold was just like somebody said, all right, if we're not going to be specific about this and tell users what they need to do, how to to fix it, then we can't be getting these phone calls. <laughs> and yeah. it just raised the tolerance level. I don't know. I Again, more conjecture. I don't know. But did they fixed stop? it outright? Or did the they ask? fix it? Right. Who knows? Who knows? I, you know. If they fix that, I've got a list of things I'd like to have them take a look at now that uh, that's off their list, because especially in Ventura. Like, say, Core Audio in Ventura? I'm just... Is there a problem with Core Audio in Ventura, Pete? You know what? Here, Dave, i got a suggestion. We can find out. Okay. Upgrade your podcasting machine to Ventura and see if that works okay. Okay. Oh, (laughs) Oh, wait a minute. You tried that already Wait, this sounds very familiar. (laughs) It sounds like yeah. you tried that, and it was a total disaster. It was a total disaster. Speaking of avoiding disaster, Pete, you got a cool stuff found for us, my friend, today? Um, I, I do. Hang on. Hang okay. on. Ah, yeah, okay. So I had to find out which one which one we were talking about. Um, so in, in my regular updates for security... I got a, a warning that came across my desk uh, last week, and it said the FBI warns against using the phone charging stations that scammers are using to attack your phone. So when traveling, you know, we drain our batteries on devices. Most airports, hotels, public places have free charging areas and USB ports, you know, yeah. like under the seats in the waiting area, that sort of thing. Yep. Beware, all right? Uh, there's a thing called juice jacking, and you should avoid using free charging stations at airports, hotels, shopping centers, that sort of thing. And here's how it works. A scammer puts a malware or a monitoring software into a public USB port, and that gives them the ability to steal data off of your phone or even lock your phone up. You know, it could take passwords, addresses, banking information, all that. You, you know how you have your entire life on that little thing in your pocket? They can get to it. So... What can you do, you ask, to stop such a thing? There's a thing called a juice, what's it called? A juice, juice jack, jack defender. Blocking. Yeah, juice jack defender. And I found one on Amazon for, for less than $6. And essentially what it is, it's a little USB-A to USB-A plug. Like a, like a pass-through device. Yeah, a pass-through device. And what it boils down to is it doesn't have any wires inside it that allow data to transfer, only power. Ah, so you can still charge your device, but there's no route in there by which uh, data can pass in order to take data off your phone or to put a virus or data onto your phone, that sort of thing. So uh, right there, if if you're traveling a lot, highly recommend uh, that if you don't carry a battery pack, something to recharge yourself, 
then then have one of these little uh, devices for less than five, less than six bucks, plugged into the end of your charging cord for public use, and never grab a. Uh, hey, look, there's a cord. Right, right, right. You know? yeah. Oh, let me just use that. Gee, what could go wrong, right? Yeah. They could they can put I mean, data th- onto there, there is a there is a safety mechanism in the iPhone where you have to allow the device that you've yeah, plugged it'll come into. Up and say trust this device. The trust this device screen. Thank you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But but let's say you you grab a cord that you just found and you plug it into your computer to charge. Yeah. It's gonna say trust this device. Well, yeah, it's my computer. Of course yeah, I want to trust fair. it. And there's yeah, no telling that there isn't something in there. Yep. Um, that's how, yep. you know, that the Iranian centrifuges were. Yeah, no, you're right. Yeah, yeah, ruined yeah. years ago. Yep. Cool. All right. Well, on the, uh, charging front, John, you had a cool stuff found to share with us for today. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I got this for my birthday because I put it on my wish list, Dave. Nice. Um, what do you do if you're out and about and you need to charge your Apple Watch, but there's no charging station anywhere? Well, maybe you should get this device that I found called Portable Charger for Apple Watch. And it's a little battery pack, 1,000 milliamp hours, so you will get a couple of charges at least. Um, That's really it. Yeah. Yeah. What, how it's much like is 15, it? Yeah, it's like okay. 15 bucks. There you go. Yeah. Cool. But it's That's a good option cool. for uh, when you're on the road and you need to charge so your So for the listeners that can't see what we're looking at, it's basically the size of a keychain. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Little key fob. The that one is awesome. The one thing I will share about this is it has a battery in it, which means mm-hmm. if you're flying on a plane, it needs to stay in your carry-on. You can't just put it in your charger bag as a spare and and forget about it because you can't put batteries uh, in a checked yeah. bag. Yeah. How so? Unless you can disable it, turn it off. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's right. That's a whole. Yeah, that's a whole other thing. <laughs> there is for twelve dollars a two pack. Of these little things that I carry and I have, I always keep one of them. Actually, I keep one in my travel, like my carry on. And I also have one in my charger bag because for 12 bucks, they're cheap. And it is just a USB a to Apple watch puck. Similarly, a little keychain thing. I keep a spare of these all the time. I, I have one in my car. It is super handy to have these around and, uh, and I've even been known to just give them away. If if you come up to me and ask, do you have an Apple Watch charger I can borrow? It's like, nope, I have one you can have. Here you go, because they're twelve bucks. So now, now I now I just going to put myself in the poorhouse because everybody's going to come up and ask. Right, me everybody will be at Dave's after the show. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of what you would see at Dave's after the show, I uh, I've I've been you know I you know me I I like my NASs my network storage devices, and I like them to be able to run uh, as hardware transcoding for my media library, for my Plex library and all of that stuff. And Synology, uh, up until very recently, was not including hardware transcoding engines in their devices. And so I started looking elsewhere. Talked about QNAP, and QNAP has some devices, certainly has some devices that are very much built for transcoding. I found another brand, though, called Terramaster. And I've been uh, I got one of their Terramaster F4 423. It's a 4-bay NAS. It's got a, a Celeron chip in it 
for which has transcoding. It's a it's the Celeron N5095, so it's a quad core, and it'll do you know 4K transcoding. It I've, I've been testing it for a while. It's fantastic. I like its web based user interface much better than uh, the QNAP interface. It's it's actually very similar to the Synology web interface. The one thing I will say, it is dollar for dollar less expensive than the QNAP uh, for, you know, features f- uh, f- per dollar. However, and it, it, so compared to a, if you want just something that's going to do tr- hardware transcoding and you don't want to wait for, you know, the perfect Synology new model to appear that would do it. Uh, this is a good option to look at. The issue is that Synology has way more features uh, in terms of its apps than TerraMaster or QNAP have. Um, neither of them has uh, an, uh, an analog to the Synology Office suite, which I find to be spectacular. I love being able to use Synology Office. It's like you're running your own Google Office, Google Docs, Google Sheets, you know, web-based, collaborative. It's awesome. That doesn't exist on TerraMaster. But if you're looking for a, a NAS, it, they do have cloud syncing, so you can run your own, you know, private NAS, private cloud, just like your own private Dropbox. TerraMaster has that. They have native apps for Mac and iPhone and iPad, as well as, you know, Windows and and, and such and Android. Um, and, and, you know, it's a it's a solid NAS offering. And I like what they're doing. It's pretty cool. How's their price point, Dave? Um, I, you know, the one that I have with this Celeron in it, Bear, is four ninety nine. So okay. that's, you know, that's, that's about 150 Comparable. bucks less than you'd spend on a Synology. It's about the same price you'd spend on a QNAP. So, um, so yeah, I've been, I've been, uh, I've been happy with it. You know, it's a, it's a, it's like I said, it's a solid offering. So that's, uh, that's where we go. It's always good to see competition and things like that it, because it keeps the other prices down. Well, and it keeps you know. like the, the feature set is sort of the important thing. Like the yeah. fact that this exists, the fact that QNAP is doing what they're doing, the fact that we've been saying what we've been saying. And I, I, I will I will reiterate that, uh, you know, our community's voice has been no small part of why Synology took a second look at transcoding on what they're doing. The, the Marius hostings community, similar, right? Yeah, like we, yeah. we definitely, you know, joined, uh, joined a, a similar mission with Marius on this and, and, and he joined with us. So it it's, but you know, like it's good to have these things out there so that you can see what the options are and compare and contrast. Yeah, it's good. Competition is great. I agree. That's what we got time for today, folks. Thanks for hanging Dude, out. It with sounds us. like the band is playing. The band's playing, man. Oh. Champing at the bit, as it were. Man. Yeah. Do we chomp fun. at the bits? I don't want to go. Do we chomp at the bits? Do we champ a horse champs at the bit, but do we yeah. here on the show what is what we're doing like chomping at the bits? Or are we chomping and Ooh. spitting the bits? And then you get the bits and you your, both. You, you, you your computer or your iPhone takes the bits and transforms them back into an analog signal that goes into your ear holes, and then that's what we did here. I don't know. It's something about the bits. All right. Uh, that's what we got. You got anything else to share, John? No. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for hanging out with us. Thanks for checking out our sponsor, collide.com slash MGG. Of course, you can see all of our sponsors at 
MacGeekUp.com slash sponsors. But make sure, please, go to MacGeekUp.com. Sign up for the mailing list there. You get the show notes delivered. We don't spam you at all, unless you consider having the show notes lovingly handcrafted with links delivered right to your door or right to your email box every week. Thanks to Cashfly providing all the bandwidth to get the show from us to you. Thanks for hanging out. John, you must have one last piece of advice. That's not one word, but maybe two, three words. Can we get three words out of you? Yeah, I see it on uh, Pete's shirt. And the three words are don't get caught. Made up. Later.